So just to recap, this is about seven weeks, actually, after the people are brought out of Egypt, out of their slavery in Egypt. And over the course of those seven weeks, they've seen God do a number of miraculous things to provide for them. We've seen the parting of the Red Sea, where they were um, able to flee on dry land from the Egyptian pursuers. Uh, they've traveled through the wilderness and arrived at Marah, where the Lord made bitter water sweet for them to be able to drink and survive. And then the Lord blessed them with uh, some rest in a place called Elam, where there were um, 12 springs and 70 palm trees, so giving them some rest from the harsh desert conditions. He brought them through the wilderness of Sin, where he provided manna from heaven for them to eat on a daily basis. And we also, uh, last, lastly, they, they traveled through Rephidim. And again, God provided water for them miraculously. And he also gave them a miraculous victory over their Amalekite attackers. And now they've, they've traveled through all those different areas and they arrive at Mount Sinai. And they're actually gonna stay at Mount Sinai for a, a long while. They'll be here for around 11 months. So they've been traveling for seven weeks. They're gonna stay at Mount Sinai for around 11 months. So all the rest of the book of Exodus, all of the book of Leviticus, and part of the book of Numbers, the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. And for Moses, this has come full circle because it was at Mount Sinai where he encountered God in the burning bush and where God told him uh, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and bring them back to this mountain. In, in Exodus chapter three, verse 12, he says to Moses, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So they had intended to make their way back to this mountain to serve the Lord. So God speaks to Moses, Moses climbs up this mountain and God speaks with Moses and he sets the stage for what's coming next. And Israel's, Israel entering into this covenant with God is preceded by three things, a reminder, an introduction to the covenant, and an instruction. And first, by way of reminder, if you, if you look at verse four, he tells them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. This image of eagle's wings, if you, if you just start to visualize it and think about it, it's actually a, a beautiful picture of parental care and complete deliverance. So parental care, so adult eagles, as their young eaglets were learning to fly and as they left the nest and as they uh, were not yet strong and mature, they would struggle in flight. The parents would come beneath them and let them clutch and, and cling to their backs as they supported them in flight and carried them where they needed to go and protected them. And that's the way that God has protected and come underneath Israel and provided complete deliverance. So you imagine just an eagle soaring high in the heavens and it's this image of the Israelites stuck in bondage and captivity, just being able to God just taking them up, just lifting them up and carrying them out of that situation um, with complete power, complete con control, complete deliverance. Now, a deliverance that, that frees you from what you were enslaved to but doesn't bring you to God is incomplete. And that's why God says that he brings them to himself. 
So God alone delivered them. God alone brought them out of Egypt. And he did not deliver them to let them wander through the desert searching for God. And so this is a, this is a reminder for the Israelites, not just of what God has done for them, but that he's drawing them to himself. <coughs> so when they were uh, crossing the Red Sea, God provided provision and uh, helped solve a, a very real need in that situation, but ultimately the plan was to draw the, them to himself. And where he made the bitter water sweet, yes, it was provision for the Israelites, but that was all part of God's plan to draw them to himself. And even when they were blessed with shady palm trees and springs of water, God did not just let them stay there forever. That was part of God's plan, their journey, to bring them to himself. And when God provided manna for them to eat day in and day out, that was part of God's plan to draw them to himself. When they had victory over the Amalekite attackers, God brought them to himself. So we see in each step of the journey, there were very real problems that needed to be solved and lessons that needed to be learned by the Israelites. But that wasn't the only thing going on. God ultimately wanted to bring his people to himself to enter into a covenantal relationship with them. I think that it's very easy to forget that that's God's goal for his people. And sometimes we can approach God as if there's just a lesson to be learned or a problem to be solved. And that, that's incredibly unfortunate. And I see it in my own life. I mean, how many times have I approached my Bible reading asking God the question, okay, God, what, what am I supposed to learn here? Like, how, do I, how do I study this and just learn more? How do I, how do I just know more about your word? Or, how can I find something in here that uh, will, will help me with what I'm struggling with or help me with what I'm going through? Those are wonderful things to do, wonderful questions to ask, and we need to be doing those as God's people. But how often do I approach the scriptures just asking God, Lord, I just want to spend time with you. I just want to uh, grow in my relationship with you. I want to know your heart. Lord, you've brought me to yourself how do I just, how do I rest in that? How do I not use you to solve my problems or to teach me a lesson, but how can I enjoy your presence, Lord? I mean, imagine, um, imagine if you're a parent here, imagine taking your son or daughter out on a special like birthday date, like a one-on-one -on -one birthday celebration. Or if you're not a parent, imagine going on, or imagine taking a friend a friend out on that type of a, a thing, a special one-on-one -on -one birthday event, right? You want to treat them, so you go do something that they like, and maybe you buy them something, uh, a gift that they, they enjoy, and then you're out to eat ice cream, and you're just enjoying your time with them, and then they pause, and with, with zero emotion, zero affection, they just ask you inquisitively, so what, what's the point? What are you trying to teach me? Like, what? I don't get it. Like, what am I supposed to learn from this interaction with you? It's absurd, and it's heartbreaking as a, as a, if you're imagining that as a parent with your child, that's actually heartbreaking for you if they approached the entire relationship that way. So I think it's just important to remember that God's not a spare tire or a philosophical textbook. He's our father, and we can approach him when we have needs. We can approach him when uh, we need wisdom, 
But perhaps God just wants you to spend time with him. So what would happen if we reframed our understanding of where God has taken us in our lives and why? As, as preparation for this morning, I actually wrote down a, a, a list looking through my own life, the things that God has done in my life, how he's helped me, how he's delivered me, how he's taught me and instructed me. And then I asked a, another question and took it a step further. How did God use this to bring me to himself? How did God use this to simply grow, grow us closer to one another as a father and a son? or as a daughter and their father. And so when I feel conviction, yes, that's to teach me the error of my ways and to bring me to repentance, but God's desire is ultimately that that conviction will result in um, nothing coming in between my relationship with him, a restored right relationship with God. And when I think about when people, friends and family have failed me and how that's been painful and how God has taught me a lesson that only he is perfectly faithful and trustworthy. I can remember that lesson, but I can also remember God's presence in that moment and that he was giving attention to my heartache and that that he comforted me. That's a relational experience with God. That's not a textbook experience with God. So God reminds Israel that when he delivers his people, he doesn't just leave them to wander, he brings them to himself. And I think that that's a, a valuable and important reminder for us today. And after, after giving Israel this reminder, God uh, introduces the covenant that he's gonna make with his people. Look at verse five. He says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he doesn't even lay out the terms and conditions of the covenant yet. That's coming. But we do get a, a glimpse. We get an introduction. We get the essence of what God will do with his people. First thing we notice is that this, this is actually a conditional covenant. If if you obey my voice, if you keep my covenant, there will be blessings for you. <clears throat> now, God is also instructing them to obey his voice, making it clear that they are not to listen to the cultures around them or the culture where they came from because they were surrounded by uh, cultures and peoples and, and they came from Egypt where uh, other gods were served, other gods were worshiped. And notice he says, if you keep my covenant, God is instituting this covenant and it's non-negotiable. He didn't sit down and ask them, you know, what do you want in here? What, what should we do here? God knows what is right for his people and God will instruct them on how to live lives that honor him, that bring him glory, how to live lives that represent him well to the nations around them and how to live lives that ultimately will be for their own blessing. He says that they will be a treasured possession among all peoples. That phrase, that word, treasured possession, it gives this, this image of a, a king over a domain, over his kingdom who owns everything, but then 
where he lives, where he resides, in his inner rooms, he has a special possession that he treasures above all else. Everything belongs to God, but the Israelites will be a special treasure that he holds close, near, and dear to his heart. And he tells them that in this covenant, they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Holy meaning set apart for God's purposes. And instead of just one individual person as a priest, their nation, in a sense, will be a priestly nation that will point the world to the one true God, Yahweh. And if somebody wants to know the one true God, if somebody wants to serve the one true God, they go through Israel to do that because Israel acts as a priest representing God to the world. So those are the essential components of the covenant. Um, now, here's, here's the difference between the covenant God is going to create with Israel and all other religions in the world. How God operates and any other religion that you can find. It's that God has already called Israel. God has already chosen Israel. God has already provided a means of deliverance for Israel. He is going to come down to them and speak with them. And every other religion, it's, uh, it's man searching for God, man trying to release themselves from their own bondage by doing things, by being good enough. It's God, excuse me, it's, it's man ascending a mountain to reach God instead of God descending down to us and reaching out to us. And if you go to this, this region, if you went to this region around the time of the, the, the Israelites here, you would see surrounding cultures erecting structures and temples for their false gods to try to reach up to the heavens, ascend into the heavens uh, to find God and to please God. So it's a complete opposite. And the interesting thing is the people agree to do all that the Lord had commanded them in this covenant, and they will do that multiple times uh, forward beyond this. They will agree to do all that the Lord has commanded them in this covenant. And the Lord knows their hearts, their intentions, their frailty, and he knows that they are not going to keep this covenant. But he loves them anyway, he pursues them anyway, and he institutes this covenant with his people. So God has reminded them how he's delivered them to bring them to himself. He's introduced this covenant and the blessings that will follow if they follow it. And finally, he calls Israel to consecrate themselves. So look at, look at verse nine. And the Lord said to Moses, and behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. 
So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for on the third day, uh, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So in preparation for entering this covenant, God gives a few specific instructions. They are to consecrate themselves. He tells them to be ready for on the third day, he will appear to them uh, on the mountain. Interesting that on the third day, God intends to reveal himself to them. Uh, He instructs them to set limits around the base of the mountain past which they uh, they cannot enter by penalty of death. And then finally, he instructs them that when they hear the trumpet blast on that third day, they are to travel, they are to come from where they're camped up to those limits to experience uh, receiving the covenant from the Lord. Now, I do think it's important to acknowledge that this is, this is what's referred to as the old covenant. We are under the new covenant. There are some differences because of what Christ has done on the cross. So this is where there is a difference in how we relate to this experience or how we see this experience versus the Israelites. So the point in this this passage, what we see very clearly is the wide chasm between God and the people whom he loves. And it's because God is a holy, righteous perfect, just God, and these people are fallen and sinful. And so this just highlights the depravity of man, the need, uh, the need for a savior, and how unholy we really are, how unrighteous people really are. But under the, the, the difference between the old and the new covenant, we can, we can draw some distinctions here. So in this passage, God descends upon this mountain, In the new covenant, Jesus descends and lives among us in our midst, face to face, closer than even this this encounter. Emmanuel, God with us. The Israelites here were kept back by barriers. And Christ, when he was crucified on the cross, the barrier between God and man, that veil in the temple, God tore in two, symbolizing a restoration of the the closeness and relationship and access to the Father. The Israelites faced death should they get too close to God. By drawing near to to Christ, we attain life. Their approach was marked by great fear and trembling. We'll, We'll see likely next week how terrifying of an experience this would be with thunder and lightning and fire and smoke and trembling of the mountain. And so this experience for the Israelites, though they knew that God loved them and cared for them and brought them to himself, there was still a great sense of terror or fear associated with this. And yet we are invited to come boldly before the throne of grace where we have access to the Father through, the Je- through Jesus Christ. So there are some differences there. But God commanded Moses to consecrate the Israelites, and I think that that idea of consecration is still relevant for us today, even under the new covenant. So to consecrate something is to set something apart for God's service and to make it holy. 
And I think we also, uh, talking about distinctions, we're di distinguishing between the old and the new covenant. I think we also need to distinguish between two words, holiness and righteousness. So there's this phrase that we often use when somebody is acting better than everybody else. We say that they are holier than thou. They're acting holier than thou. And that's not really accurate because if we were to use words with their proper definitions, we would say they are um, more righteous than thou, uh, righteouser than thou. <laughs> so it doesn't really make sense. So righteousness has to do with um, moral perfection. It has to do with rightness, rightness before God, right action. And holiness has to do with something's purpose and being designated for God's use. So holiness, different things can be holy. God says that the Sabbath day is holy. When he spoke to Moses in the burning bush, he said that he was standing on holy ground. Um, when he, he'll eventually give the Israelites specific instructions on how to create these garments for their priests and turbans and jewels and uh, very specific instructions and those are to be holy garments. And the animal sacrifices that they will give uh, and offer up to the Lord are to be they're holy unto the Lord. All of these different things are holy. They are specifically for God's purpose, for God's use. To be holy is to be completely dedicated to the Lord's purpose above all else. <coughs> That's still true for Christ's church today, right? So I, I was thinking through this idea of holiness, and, and one way that was helpful for me to think about it was that the term or the word alignment. So in calling them to consecrate themselves, he's calling them to align themselves with God. In Leviticus 11, he tells them, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I, uh, for I am holy. So there's, there's this idea that God has a purpose, God has a plan, God has a direction that he is taking the course of human history. And by being holy, I am giving my life to that purpose. I'm aligning my intentions, my heart, my desires, my will with God's will, with God's heart, with his intentions. And so to be holy is not to be morally perfect and better than other people. To be holy is something for each and every Christian, and it's to, to offer yourselves for the Lord's service, for his purpose. Now, what are things like when they're not in alignment? Well, I saw a chiropractor a few months ago, and she informed me that things were not in alignment, and specifically the top two vertebrae. And she said uh, that most of the time, <coughs> most people have some type of misalignment and it's not always easy to trace the cause because oftentimes it's in childhood. You fall off a bike, you fall out of a tree, your brother shoves you off the second bunk, whatever it is, something gets thrown out of whack, but because you're built out of rubber, you don't feel it, it doesn't hurt, you move on with your life, and it could be a decade or more before the consequences start manifesting themselves, but it's been misaligned the entire time. It might take a while, but misalignment will reveal itself. I had a buddy in high school who knocked the curb with his car, threw off the alignment of his wheels. And uh, the car is trying to go this way. And it feels normal when you're driving it, but the tires are trying to go almost that way, but not quite. And so in a matter of months or, or weeks, 
the tread on the tires is completely toast. Completely toast because things were misaligned. When things are misaligned, there are usually devastating consequences, but they're often delayed consequences. So I can go and live my life not thinking at all about the, the Lord's purpose for his people, the Lord's purpose for my life, what God cares about, what, what he's trying to do. And I can go live according to my own purposes, my own ways, follow my own desires, and it can feel good in the moment. But can I just tell you that there's a better way. There's a better way to, avo to avoid those painful consequences of misalignment when you finally realize that living to serve yourself is actually self-destructive and it's destructive to those around you. We can tend to ignore misalignments for a while or even try to tell ourselves that well, we'll try to align God's will with ours and say that, well, God actually cares about the things that I care about and get that backwards. In Isaiah chapter five, it says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. When we seek to align our lives with what God has clearly revealed in his word, that's true holiness. That's how we know the will of God, the heart of God, and we can identify misalignments in our own lives. There's another uh, idea of holiness in this passage that stood out to me, and that's taking something ordinary and making it holy. Again, I mentioned the, the priestly garments that God will instruct them to create and how those, uh, those are very specific garments for very specific people. But look at what God instructs the Israelites to do uh, or as part of their consecration. In verse 10, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Now, we don't think much of that today, 21st century America, but imagine a million or so Israelites in the desert all washing their clothes. Where are you going to get the water? Where, how are you going to do this? That is quite the, quite the chore. But they're taking something completely ordinary, completely common that everybody has, that everybody's used to, and they're saying symbolically by cleansing it, Lord, this is for your purpose. God, I want to honor you in the, the simple, perhaps mundane, ordinary things that I have. And so I think that we have the tendency to look at things that are already holy and recognize that they're holy. And in our minds, those are the only things that are holy. So Sunday morning, obviously, uh, is when most churches around the country gather. In our minds, we can put, obviously put Sunday mornings in the holy category, that's set apart for God. Or maybe your one-on-one -on -one time with God and reading his word or in prayer, well, that is very obviously 
set apart for God, that's holy. And we ignore a lot of other areas of our lives, and we don't even think about consecrating them to the Lord. But things are made holy through the act of consecration. So something can be holy if you make it holy. Even the ordinary, daily, mundane things. What if I expanded my idea of holiness and consecration to include my drive to work every day? And what if I intentionally started that drive by saying, Lord, I'm giving this, uh, this time to you. I want to honor you with my attitude towards other people. I want to honor you with the music that I listen to, with just my thoughts as I'm driving. God, I, I give this to you for your purpose. What would happen if I consecrated my mornings to God? First thing I do when I wake up in the morning is not pursue my own desires, not... Uh, pursue, yeah, yeah, just my own desires, my own will. But what if I started the day by acknowledging, Lord, you give me every breath that I breathe. You give me every moment that I'm alive. I want to live this life for you. I give you my morning. I give you the best part of my day. Would you do something with it and use it for your will? What would happen if I did that? (coughs) What could be accomplished if I gave God all the areas of my life in that way. And what if I told God, not just flippantly, Lord, I, I, I give you my day, but Lord, I'm willing to sacrifice my plans if you show me that this doesn't align with your will. I'm willing to change how I live if I realize that this, this part of my life that I didn't have in the holiness category, what if I realize that that should be holy and I'm, I'm not honoring you with it? Am I willing to to sacrifice that for your purposes. So I want to encourage you today to identify that. Think about that. Mull that over. What is it for you? And maybe, maybe you just leave here today with one thing, one ordinary thing that God is calling you to consecrate and set, a, set aside for his purposes. Um, my mom texted me this morning and sent me a picture of a letter that she had distributed at her father's funeral to the, the people attending her father's funeral. And my father, my grandfather um, was not a believer for most of his life and received Christ on his deathbed. And in the days leading up to his passing, though he, he couldn't speak, he was visited by so many people from my mom's life, from my mom's uh, church, her connections, people who came to him and ministered to him and, and just cared for him and uh, shared the gospel with, with him. And each interaction with those people who came to the hospital room and saw him moved him one step closer to Christ until he finally made that decision for Christ. And I, I know that that only happened because those people had consecrated their lives to the Lord they might have had other plans that day. There might have been more fun things to do. But they recognized, hey, God's heart is for the lost. God's heart is for the sick. God's heart is for the hopeless. And they aligned their hearts with God's heart in that moment. And they, out of an, in an act of love, in a Christ-like way, they ministered to my grandfather. That's beautiful. Don't underestimate 
the power of consecrating your life to the Lord and what God can accomplish through that. And it might seem like those ordinary day-to-day things, but compound that over your lifetime and imagine what God could do through that. The eternal riches, the eternal rewards, the eternal consequences by consecrating your life today. So maybe it's just one thing that we think through, that we, we decide, Lord, I'm gonna give this to you. I'm gonna do it intentionally, with purpose. I'm gonna pay attention to, if you're steering me in another direction, if this, if this is really Stephen honoring and not God honoring, I'm willing to change that. So we've seen how God is preparing his people for where he's taking them. That he cares deeply that, that they remember him, that they remember Yes, the lessons that they've learned. Yes, his provision and what he's, what he's done for them. But how he's brought them to himself for relationship with himself. God has revealed his heart to them through this covenant that they would listen, that they would obey, that they would be his treasured people. And that by that, they would be a light to the world around them. Which results in blessing to the nations. God calls his people to to be set apart, to be holy. And I know that God's hope for our church is that we would be a people who remember how he's delivered us and how he helps in times of need and how he teaches us and guides us and matures us and grows us, but that God has ultimately brought us to himself, to his heart, and that he wants us to align our hearts with his heart and experience the incredible things that God will do through that. Experience the blessing that God brings through that. I know that God's hope for our church is that in response to his grace and mercy, we consecrate our lives to him. So would you join me in prayer um, as we think through this, as as we pray through this?